0: you yeah.
1: Hey okay, hello and uh, this is Steve from Retro Man Blog and welcome to this latest edition of uh, Retro Sonic Podcast our little lockdown lowdown special and this is episode 3 and I'm pleased to welcome into our virtual studio today Mr Raymond Gorman um, of That Petrol Emotion and The Everlasting Year and hello Raymond Hey Steve good it's good to see you I mean we've been promising to do this for quite a while haven't we
2: <laughs> Yeah it no, has it's taken a while but um that's the beauty of the lockdown now. You've been able to do all these things we've been putting
1: off. Yeah, so the idea of this little series of podcasts was to get in some people to to chat. Uh, it's sort of like a little Desert Island disc soundtrack of your life, sort of thing, you know, just to see what people are, just to keep us occupied, really, and to entertain, hopefully. And so, what I want to know, I mean, going right back to the very beginning, what was the very first, your very earliest musical memory, you know, when you were well, the first time you can recall? hearing something special that's like, wow, what's this, you know, what's this great thing I'm hearing?
2: It's really funny, because like, like, music was always a big part of my life, but my parents were not really big music fans. I don't remember much music around the house, to be honest with you, when we were younger. First, like the kind of first memory I think I have, and I'm not even, it might even be a false memory, but I don't think so, it was like the Beatles, probably she loves you, I think. The Beatles always kind of, they confused me because they had two different singers i yeah. Yeah, and then the next sort of strongest memory after that would be um, Ride a White Swan. So yeah. that's, what, 1970. And again, it was in, it was in somebody else's house. It was, we moved house when I was seven. 1968, that was a big year. It was like a civil rights march, which my dad took me on and, we moved house so, and um, I changed school. So it was, a, it was a traumatic year for me because um, I'd been at this really amazing primary school and Damien O'Neill was there at the same time with me and he was taken out as well. And I think both of us were quite traumatized because <laughs> the school we were at was, was a mixed school and very much geared towards the creative arts. I mean, I, I was doing acting and stuff, yeah. which I never subsequently ever did again, really. And, you know, I remember, like, we did um, these big plays and you'd be wearing, like, pan stick makeup and stuff. And the play that I was in, I was, like, playing, I don't know if it was, like, a dwarf or something or some kind of leper <laughs> I can't remember. But I had to eat an apple. I remember, there like, there's two things I remember about it was I had to eat an apple and I was really nervous. So I ate it really quickly and people started laughing, you know, because I, I, it was comical. And then I responded to ham that I Am, I responded to the laughter and, you know, I yeah. made it even, you know, made, like just camped it up or whatever, you know. And then I had at another point, there was like a kind of like a sort of like a little house made out of cardboard or whatever. And I think I had to go down the chimney and then I got stuck in the chimney. And again, everybody was laughing. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it was just an amazing feeling. So that's where I think that's where the the kind of idea to be on stage kind of came from. But then oh, okay. like it didn't happen then for another 14 years or whatever. So yeah but it was a it was a really great time so then we moved house and there was this girl called Diane Jackson so she would have been a few years older than me so she got me to dance one day to ride a white swan with T-Rex <laughs> and that was brilliant you know like dancing with a girl and stuff you know and, <laughs> and so like, I got kind of started my love with T-Rex as well and, and sort of glam yeah and I, I think in the email I sent you I, I told the story about like Diane Jackson her mum was really she was a bit of a character and uh whenever anybody religious would come around you know you would get the Mormons going door to door like it's really funny the Mormons can you imagine this is during like the start of the troubles and the Mormons were still coming around all the houses and she used to shout at the Mormons you know if they came like you know and knocked the door she was so rude to them and so all the kids knew there was going to be some fun you know so everybody gather around her door and yeah. wait for her just to tell them the f off or whatever you know it's really
1: classic so did you did you get the girl? did you dance sing did it work no I know no, I think
2: yeah I don't know I mean I was couple of years younger than her i'm sure she wasn't interested it was probably still pre-pbs or whatever but you know it was cute and and she was really sweet and stuff you know so it was lovely it's a, it's a lovely memory so yeah. i mean that record's very kind of
0: special to me ride it all out like a bird in the sky was it all out like you were a bird fly it all out like an eagle in a sunbeam, ride it all out, laugh, like you were we Wear a tall hat, like the druid in the old days. Wear a tall hat and a tattooed gown. Ride a white swan, like the people of a tree. Wear your head long, babe, you can't go run. Catch your blood. On your forehead, say a few spells, and baby, there you go. Take a black cat and sit you down your shoulder, and in the morning, you'll know all you know.
2: I'd actually been learning um, classical piano. So I, I was like a classically trained pianist um, for many years until, until we moved house and, I, and uh, the piano teacher uh, was an epileptic. and he, he had a fit one day. He was a great teacher. I was making amazing progress with him, really quite fantastic. But he one day he fell over the top of me. He had a fit and he fell over the top of me. He pinned me down the piano. And i couldn't move and i thought he was dead you know and i must have lay there for about 20 minutes and then i managed to extricate myself and I was, exactly you can imagine i was terrified absolutely terrified, yeah. traumatized and of course i told instead of like telling the truth i was i don't know why i was scared to tell the truth but so i told my mum he moved away <laughs> so i used to go up to the park and uh you know and just stay in the park for an hour instead of going to the lesson and then i told my mom that he'd moved away or something i was just telling all these <laughs> lies and then she met him a couple of weeks later uptown, and he explained what happened. But they all dealt they dealt with it quite badly. Yeah. And I was never able to go back. And then I went to another teacher, and she wasn't as... I just never kind of clicked
1: with her. So then I ended up giving up piano then. So you could have been a an actor, a comedian, or a classical pianist then, <laughs> <laughs> So That's
2: interesting, because when I went to learn the guitar, my parents didn't want to help me at all. They said, oh, you look... You gave up the pianos. So we're not helping you anymore. It was like, I had a traumatic incident. There's a reason why I didn't go back to piano. So I, had the, I, got, a, I got a paper round. Yeah. And I got a really sort of very basic electric guitar and a little six-watt amp. I taught myself in. I didn't take any lessons
1: so you mentioned you're hearing like mark bolan and this is a great thing isn't it about music when you this is what i'm trying to capture is that songs that have sort of an, a memory that are evocative of a particular time and that's that's the amazing thing isn't it that you know when you listen to that say ride a white swan you know you're transported back to oh, totally. or you know and that, that's the great thing what I, that i and it's sort of what i'm trying to capture in this in this series you know of um those great musical moments. you know.
2: Yeah, so, well, I think, I think we were lucky to grow up during that time because that, that time is gone, if you think about it. You know, the charts, and, and you, you think about it, we kind of came of age in, uh, in the 70s whenever, you know, if you go through every year of the 70s, there was something amazing coming out like every week or every two weeks. You know, you hear something and you are be like, what is that? I've never heard anything like that before. And that continued the whole way through. And then there was that thing as well, which was like uh, music was like a communal experience because you could, you know, when you're at school, you, everybody would sit. We, we used to have like a little tiny transistor and we would sit at lunchtime. And remember listening to Johnny Walker because it'd be like a chart mm. rump be on a Tuesday during our lunch break. And, you know, I remember we'd even write, like me and my brother, we used to write down the chart, you know, yeah. all the, the, the top 30 or whatever. And, yeah. you know, so it was like what they call, you know, what they call like a water cooler moment, you know, so everybody yes. could share and that you know shared love of music but then also you could take the music away and listen to it by yourself you know and it was yeah. like that thing where you you know you people did nothing but just listen to the music and then like you know look at the sleeve and, and taking yeah. all the information or you know look you just enjoy the artwork on the sleeve do you know what i mean it was a very where it was much more satisfying experience i think than like streaming music
0: hat like a druid in the old days Wear a tall hat and a touch of Rider Ride a white swan like the people of a belt where your hair long, baby, can't go far.
2: I'm telling this story because this benefit of like um, Damien and John from The Undertones and Kieran as well. Actually, there was this guy we all knew in Derry. He was a doctor's son. His, his nickname was Wombat. His name was Donald McDermott. So he was getting good pocket money, and he was like, you know, he was a real aficionado of the NME. So whatever the NME said, you know, was gospel to him. But he had the money to go out basically and buy like an LP almost every week. But the good thing about it was he would share those records. Yeah. So you know, that's how I got to hear. MC5 New York Dolls The Velvet's um like Eno Solo Records he he was I remember he was actually a member of the Eno fan club but there was only I remember him telling me there was only about Maybe he was number five hundred and fifty or something. Yeah, you know, there was probably maybe only eight hundred. A, a
1: good friend to know.
2: He was, and I mean, look, he he was responsible for for changing uh, John O'Neill's tastes, and and then as a result, Damien and Kieran as well. I mean, Kieran was quite sort of precocious because
1: Kieran's actually a year or two below me at school. What was the first record you bought then? So you've been you got into listening to the charts and that, and you. What was it? Am, I, am, I, <laughs> am I allowed to say what the actual one was or do we, do we have to Well we can gloss over but the thing is you can't airbrush it because you know you, you go No up.
2: I know but well, I was going to say to you like I, I still play those records because I think I think it's a kind of disgrace to the memory of uh, Mike Leander. We're, we're talking about Gary Glitter records from the early seventies, boy. Because the thing about it was, like, Glitter was the singer and he fronted it, but it was Leander was the genius. I mean, he was a genius that got that sound, you know, yeah. from, from the Glitter Band records, you know. The, and I think people still don't really know how he got that sound, you know. So it was a Gary Glitter record. It was Hello, Hello and Back Again, but then the one after that would have been Life on Mars. So you had, you know, Mark Bolan and you had T-Rex and you had Bowie, who's just been huge for me. i say 70s Bowie as well. I mean, I did, you know, I, I lost Bowie in the 80s after Let's Dance. But for me, you know, the 70s belonged to Bowie, really. So like, you know, I got, I remember Life of Mars and I have a really, so like we would have, like my dad bought a stereo. So the stereo would have been in this sort of what we call the sitting room. So you go on and listen to the records there. But then, I don't know, some, like I got a little portable player then which was just it didn't wouldn't play lps just played um 45s mm-hmm. so i remember life on mars particularly i just wore it out you know i would go up to my bedroom and just listen to it by myself and you know that record would just like life on mars that just really transported you you know it fired up your imagination i mean obviously that was when things were starting to get a bit hairy in northern ireland you know it was like i was walking to school and seeing policemen lying dead on the road and, Bob's gone off 200 yards from our school and stuff. So it was mental time. But, you know, I think, that, I think the music saved me and it, and it fired up your imagination and it, it made you see the world in colour and it also kind of opened it up. You know, you realised that, okay, you lived in this small place but that there was a, a larger universe out there that you could maybe have access to later on.
0: It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But she's lifted ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools If they asked her to Life on Mars.
1: so how about the live shows at the time what I mean as a kid did your parents take you to see any bands or did you get when, when was the sort of live first live concert you went to see? Was there many in Derry at the time? Was there many?
2: No, there was nobody. The nobody would come. I mean, very few people would have come during the during the early seventies. The, the only people that, that came really were Rory Gallagher came, but he would have gone. He would have he would have gone to Belfast. Um, and the Bay City Rollers came to Derry, which is quite interesting. They came, and that would have been right at the height of Roller Mania, about seventy four or something. So I heard about it, but I didn't go and see it. I wouldn't have, you know. <laughs> they said I wouldn't go and see him. But, you know, I'm, I, I can imagine it must have been just absolutely mental, you know. Oh, yeah. So there were like show bands. Um, there were show bands around that time. And, um, and you know, they, they were just, you know, they were all dressed up in suits. And, you know, they were perfectly competent. In fact, they're probably all brilliant musicians. You know, I think Rory Gallagher actually played in the show band, you know, in the early mid-60s. You know, for me, I was already thinking, you know, they weren't doing the sort of songs that yeah. I wanted to do. You know, they do like Running Bear or stuff like that. You know, they do more, it's more sort of 50s stuff. It's funny because it like, you think about the early 70s, uh, there was a real sort of renaissance of kind of like 50s rock and roll was starting to happen again. Yeah. So you would have seen that there would have been no show bands and stuff. Um But the first band that I actually saw... uh live in concert was Horse Lips, Irish band called Horse Lips. Mm-hmm. They did What they did was they took like old traditional um, traditional music, sometimes like, you know, maybe a thousand years old or whatever. They get these old tunes and they would update them. You know, they were an electric yeah. band and they were fantastic. They really mm-hmm. were. When they started, I mean, they were so great live. And, but you had to go over the border. I don't think they came into the north. Hmm. they wouldn't have come in because I, when I saw them I was about 14 so that's what 74, 75 yeah. so I had to go over the border and my uncle took me and my uncle was like the youngest in my mom's family so he was only about maybe 10, 15 years older than me but he was a bit of a he was a bit of a tube he was like he had no sense at all and I remember he bought me a beer and I was thinking I was, thought I was in heaven you know I was like well I'm going to see a bank and he's bought me a beer so. and then he told my mom. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I, was like, I told my mum. So it was a whole big row about that. But it was still really exciting and sort of forbidden and stuff, you know. And yeah. horse lips were brilliant. And I think if you talk to any kind of Irish musicians, like of my generation, like people like Damien, Kieran, Shauna Hagen from the High Lamas, you know, when we've, we, we've all been together, we've all talked about. And, and for most of us, that was the first band we all saw. But then when punk came along, it was really funny because. They started they were probably the first band that I had heard of started they started doing Blitzcreen Pop. Can you imagine? They were in on the first Ramones LP. Because oh, really? I remember They were kind of famous. I remember like, you know, we were just I remember like the first time when you hear when you hear the first Ramones LP, it was again that that was another big moment because everything before that was getting very layered and very kind of you know, hmm. sonorama like kind of really big, big sound, very open sound. And then theirs was like really dry and punky yeah. and in your face and very,
1: very basic and minimal.
2: Yeah. And it so was the a bit of
1: shock. Were the lips doing like sort of folk, Irish folk versions of Blitzkrieg Bop? No, they would have they done it quite straight.
2: You know, it would have oh, been right. like an encore. Yeah. They would have done it like an encore and they would have done it straight. You know, they would have played it probably
1: exactly the way it was on record. Only maybe they'd add the odd flourish or whatever. Yeah, can you pick a Horslips song? Because I, I must admit, I'm, I'm not aware of the their music I know I've heard the name but uh...
2: I think the two the two like my two favorites I'm not going to say the best it's just my opinion um there's one called Derek Doom and there's no Derek Doom's probably the most famous and then there's another one called Furniture and that's based on a very very old melody I think it's like from this guy called O'Carolin who was a piper okay
1: let's hear it Horse lips and furniture So, what sort of um, drew you more into the sort of um, adult world of rock music and that? So, you've mentioned that you you saw the Horse Lips and then you, what was it that sort of got you away from the sort of the the, the, the chart music?
2: To, yeah, it's funny. I mean, like you know, I went to see Horse Lips and I loved them, but I don't think I, I don't think I, no, I didn't, I didn't actually buy their record. You know, which was really interesting. So the other, the other kind of, so this is you're talking about that kind of period. Uh, sort of after glam so obviously I would have been like would have Roxy Music so it would have been like Bolan, Bowie and Roxy Music so I would have had like I don't have that many LPs but I had um, i had like three Bowie LPs so I would have had I got up would have been the first LP and I got I think I actually got the Man Who Sold the World after that and then I got Hunky Dory so I would have had those three and then I got a Rory Gallagher So it was the first taste LP, like Rory Gallagher was in a three-piece. They were basically like the Irish version of Cream. I think they're actually better than Cream, Hmm. to be honest. I know that sounds like a big statement, but the first taste LP came out, I think came out in 1970, yeah. I think it was John Lennon's record of the year that year. He loved it as well. Hmm. And um, it's raw as hell and kind of
1: punky as well yes play um same old story okay this is uh taste uh, featuring rory gallagher and
0: same Same old old story. story
1: I, I, was, I really love that track, you know, because he's, he's a real raw guitar player, isn't he? You know, he's
2: uh... he's, he's amazing guitar. Because, well, I mean, I, I don't really like, you know, guitar players that's solo all day. I, I find that completely boring. There's only two, there's only really two guitar players that I can listen to for any length of time, and it's Rory and Hendrix. And, like, the thing with Rory is he never ever played the same thing twice. And he just has this, it's just his melodic ear, you know, it's just really quite, because, you know, to, to be to be that good and, and not to be playing the same thing all the time. It's, you know, it's really difficult.
1: So was he was he someone that inspired you to actually make that move into being a musician? So you're a fan, and then did he inspire you to <laughs> pick up a guitar? And... Yeah,
2: well, I think I think it would have been like the glam thing would have been and then So uh, to be honest with you, I think Rory and, and Jimi Hendrix, I, I really loved both of them, but I think they kind of almost put me off because, you know, very, very, very quickly I thought, I'm never going to be as good as them. It doesn't matter how much I
1: practice. No, you know, I've... for you starting up then, when you're looking at Rory Gallagher, Jimmy Hendrix, it must have been a bit more daunting than trying to sort of play along to the Johnny to Johnny Ramone or something like that, or Mick Mick Jones of the but, Clash. You know, you well, that that was the reason why Punk was so great as
2: well, because then, you know, it was like the flashbulb goes off in your head, and it's like, well, you know, I don't need to play like Rory or Hendrix. Do you know what I mean? You just have to have a bit of imagination and try and find your own style and. You know, it's like because I mean, I wanted to write songs as well, and I had words, you know, I wrote, I wrote words, so I wanted to put it all together. So I think, you know, because I think the whole thing with punk is like, I really despair sometimes when I read, you know, these kind of revisionist histories that you read about it now. I mean, what I like, what I people say to me, well, what did punk mean to you? And I think I really love that Richard Hale thing, you know, it was like the blank generation, it wasn't blank, like nihilistic. Mm. you know just destroy everything it was fill in the blanks be what you want to be do you know what I mean you know the, mm. the it's just like you, there's a you know it's like a tabula rasa as they say it's like a you know you've got a clean sheet in front of you you can rewrite yourself you yeah. know whoever you were before that moment you can just be somebody else do you know what I mean you can just everything was ripped up I mean you could say with punk it be through the baby out of the bathwater mm. to some extent it was just like I, I remember thinking. I remember because it, like, it took ages for the Sex Pistols to get on TV, didn't it? So I think it must have been the first time I would have seen them on TV. Where it must have been pretty vacant on top of the Pops. And I remember, like, there was nobody in the house, and I had the TV on full, and I was just jumping around the room. But I remember thinking, my life is starting now. Do you know what I mean? This is this is the start.
1: This is like a kickstart to the to my yeah. life. This is my life begins in earnest now. So was that the impetus for you to? actually get out and start a band or had you already done that before punk came along? No, Wee-
2: I, I wouldn't. I think even, even in the early days of punk as well, I mean, there was just far too much good stuff there and I, I still didn't feel like I was ready. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't feel like, oh, I, this is my moment now where I jump on the train. I was quite happy. I wanted to soak it all up first. Do you know what I mean? I really mm-hmm. wanted to soak it up first. I, I, think, I think actually because um, being at school with Damien and then seeing the undertones Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing how their career took off and, you know, seeing them from the early days. I mean, they were always great. I mean, I, I still think those early days, they were... I think whenever they got signed and everything, they cleaned up the sound about too much for me. But, you know, in the early days, the undertones were more like what the Pedrals were later on. And, you know, it's like they still had that kind of rawness to them.
0: Please take up at the sky All your true <laughs> <cheap, cheap, professions. laughs> You are just a I don't know it for a fact I got a picture from your sister writing on the back All your cheap, <laughs> cheap, <laughs> cheap, <professions. laughs> Output Out the south, too hard to talk about. You can hide your fears and tears, you can even scream and shout. On your two confessions, <dogs> of- complicado- mit- Don't look so surprised, you can tell me lies. It's hard to wake up to your makeup, so please take up that disguise. On your two confessions, two confessions.
2: They were fantastic because we needed something like that, you know. And it was like, you know, it just made you feel great, you know. Was well, shit, you know. If you if you saw the the Casbah was such a dive, honestly. <laughs> All the pubs in the town around that time. I mean, I, I couldn't get under most of them because I just looked. When I was seventeen, I still looked about twelve or thirteen, you know. So I couldn't get there. like the basically the the Casper was was in this. I think it was the the pub had actually been bombed, and then what they did was they put this porta cabin inside. <laughs> Yeah. The kind of ruins of whatever that place was <laughs> so it was just a porta cabin so if you couldn't get inside all you had to do was stand outside you can hear the music perfectly well do you know what i mean There's only room for about 50 people inside anyway at the most there's probably more than that they squashed everybody in yeah. so it wasn't until they moved they moved to this other place not far away and again it was just like there's maybe i don't know 50 60 people there's a place called the rock club yeah. and the stage was above the bar, if <laughs> you can yeah. imagine. So it, was up, so it was up on a, it was elevated. Oh, right. And it was just, I remember, like, that's one of the really great gigs that I've seen in my life as well. Because I think that was really very, very inspiring. To see somebody who you knew doing mm. it, doing it well.
1: Yeah.
2: Do you know what I mean? And the thing with undertones was, that, you know, they always were so down to earth. You know, they had no airs and graces at all. And it just made everybody love them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: All the more, probably more so, do you know what I mean? And then they were on top of the pops and yeah. it was dead exciting. You know? And I mean, it was great. And they couldn't believe it. And we couldn't believe it. And then not only did they, they weren't a one hit wonder either. They had a career. They made, you know, they made three great records and you got the America to play with a clash, you know? So whenever I'd see Damien around, you know, by that stage, I'd gone to university, but I'd come back to Derry on weekends sometimes. I remember, like you know, seeing Damien in the pub and just cornering him and getting him to chat about, you know, how it was with The clash and stuff. So it was brilliant. So I think having them do that, it really not only with the punk thing, but with that kind of proximity to them mm. But you, you thought,
1: yeah, you, you could do. It. You know, if you've got something good enough, you could definitely do it. So what was I know it's difficult when I asked you about the undertones, um, um, to, I know it's impossible even for me to pick a favorite undertones track, but. I was trying to narrow it down a bit and you, you went for, it surprised me a little bit because you went for one of the later songs when I asked you what your favourite Undertones track was. you picked Your Welcome. Yeah, you picked Your Welcome, which is... Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, You know the backstory that I know the people, I know the people that he wrote it about. So I think that makes it even more personal for me because it was about a guy called, um, it was about a guy called Christy Tucker and his uh, girlfriend, who's now his wife. And Christy was in, he was in jail basically. So it was about kind of her waiting for him to come out again and sort of just a sadness because it was like, you know, there was that generation of young men that got caught up in the troubles and I was only a couple of years younger. And I'm just really lucky I was I was too young at the time of Bloody Sunday. You know, you know I think the music w- was
1: a great outlet for us. Do you know what I mean? We're really lucky we had it. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting to hear these stories behind a lot of the undertones because the un- on the surface, undertones... They've always had this sort of, you know, they, they joke themselves. they songs about chocolate and girls, but they they often had a, you know, a deeper meaning. And uh, obviously, from where you were brought up, um, it's quite interesting to get that uh, that sort of backstory. So let's hear, let's hear. Well, the I end.
2: remember. When, sorry, but just just one more last thing to finish up on. I think when I, when I heard that, when I heard you're welcome, I thought, you know, because if you think about it, before then it was a lot of kind of Ramalama stuff. You know, it was like a kind of. You know they were very kind of Ramones-y, first LP and some of the second and some of the second LP, and with "You're Welcome," that was like, whoa! You know this is another level here. You know this is like, this is a proper kind of adult sort of song that's got you know there's a lot of depth of emotion on it. You know mm. what I mean? Even though on the surface it's it's very short and it seems quite simple. I mean, you know, there's the, but it's just really, really just captured something brilliant. And I think Damien's guitar playing that's that solo that Damien does. Oh just i remember the first time i heard it was just like shivers down my spine you know it's just mm-hmm. they really captured something you thought it was fantastic
1: well let's hear it now so let's hear the undertones and you're welcome us about your first band you know your um first phrase into your own music
2: well i think um maybe about 82 so when i went to university i was sort of started half-heartedly kind of looking for people to play with uh, there but it, it never got beyond the kind of drunken chaps you know in the pub yeah. and then, of course the next day nobody actually did anything about it you know so I, it's really funny so i finished university went back to Derry again and to be honest with you i kind of thought maybe that's over you know maybe it's not going to happen and then within literally within a couple of months I was in two bands and I was DJing as well just by chance I struck up a friendship with John O'Neill and we started doing the uh, a little club night me him and another friend Mickey Rooney and we just played records and we and we got a really kind of great thing great vibe kind of happening and the people that went there really loved it and we would we, take it, we took it really seriously. You know, we'd spend a whole night talking about what records we would do, and then we would make, actually, like a, a list. So then we, we would just follow the list. And so it meant that, you know, that we could take it in DJ, and you could take it turns go dancing or go chat to your friends for a while as well. It was fantastic. And then there's a local band called Bam Bam and the Colin playing, and I thought they were great. They were kind of like um cross between... Like Adam Nance Ants and Echo and the Bonnieman and Paul, a singer, we became friendly and asked me to, their guitar player left and they asked me to play guitar. So I started actually playing with them. Yeah. So the first night I ever played with them, I got up on stage and it was a bit like my acting thing when I was like seven. <laughs> I, I don't know where I got the nerve to do it because we, we did Sister Ray and We'd never rehearsed it or anything, and I, I just about knew it. Do you know what I mean? I thought, well, I'm sure I can bluff this. And it, it's, it's just one of those things where it was magical and everything clicked and everybody got into it. And Paul's really great because he's like a proper poet and he can just do stuff off the top of his head. So me and him just kind of really locked in, you know. And we, we did this verse, and people went nuts, you know. And then John O'Neill was there, he was watching. And then he approached me a couple of days later and said, if I fancy, because I'd been on at him, you know, why don't you write songs again? What's wrong with you? you know you, That's what you do, blah, blah, blah. But he was, so, he was still on a bit of a downer after the undertones, you know, and he kind of lost his confidence and stuff. But I'd sort of kept at him, you know, and he'd got his enthusiasm back through doing the, the left bank with us. So then he asked me, he said, look, I've got some songs. Do you want to help me get something together again? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. So I was doing both those, doing Bam Bam still and playing with them. And that was just, I always say to people, I felt more like a rock star with Bam Bam than I ever did in that pet. Yeah. No?
1: But you never recorded anything with Bam Bam in the Calling, did you? But you've got a live, a little bit of a live snippet that we can play, a little treat.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I'm hoping the audio, you can probably just give like a 20-minute snatch or something. Yeah. It's very raw. But I mean, it, it's a shame there's not a better um sort of document because we, we were really really good or that those songs that i've given you they're very rough and ready but that, i think that's all there is unfortunately I, I really wished we had made at least one single together as to my eternal chagrin <laughs> That snippet I gave you, it's actually a, there's a version of John and myself in a drum machine. It was the first, I think it was the first time we ever played as a a duo. Mm. So I was singing and he was playing guitar, I was playing guitar. And we did a version of Pale Blue Eyes. The drum machine rhythm uh, that we used for Pale Blue Eyes, and we sped it up a bit and we used it for Blind Spot and went on uh, Manic (laughs)
1: Path It's exactly the same rhythm. So this, this sort of duo that you formed, uh, you know, around the time of Bam Bam in the Corner with John O'Neill, was this what led into that petrol emotion?
2: Yeah, there was a couple of, like, my girlfriend at the time, Liz, like, um, she was a good looking girl, and John O'Neill thought that she was the new Debbie Hari, but unfortunately she just wasn't musical, you know, she just, and it, it put a lot of strain on our relationship at the time, because I was supposed to be, like, teaching her the songs and stuff, you know, and I remember doing, like, a natural kind of joy with her, and... Oh. You know, she'd come in on the wrong place all the time or it was it just wasn't working, you know. And I think it, it put her under a lot she I think she felt a lot under pressure as well, so that didn't help, you know. So
1: that's a, a new one to me. I so I, I didn't know. So that petrol emotion could have had a female singer. <laughs> yeah, know.
2: and then when we actually when we moved to London as well, there was another uh female singer for a while. She only lasted one gig as well. <laughs> <laughs> and she was called Male. But she was like a proper kind of rock chick, you know. Mm -hmm. But again, it just didn't suit the songs, you know. I remember her singing like keen and just didn't work, you know. One gig in in a pub called the Islington, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was organized by maybe Dick Green or Alan McGee from Creation. Because when we were in Derry, um, our friend Mickey Rooney, he was at at university with Dick Green and Dick Green's Mm -hmm. girlfriend, now wife. Elaine and Elaine came to Derry and she told Alan and Dick that we were starting to do something. So Alan sent John O'Neill a letter and said, if we came to London, he would put a song out on creation. So we should have been on creation. But unfortunately, um, when the time came, they they'd put their money into the first Jesus Mary chain record and they didn't have any money. So they kept telling us to wait, wait. Yeah. And we just couldn't wait anymore because we were we were losing our momentum, you know. We needed to kind of get going you know so then pink records were um they came along and they said okay we'll pay for it so we went with them instead and dick and alan weren't very happy as you would imagine
1: Well, then Damien joined the band as well. So you had John and Damien from the Undertones. And then, yeah. yeah, Kieran
2: joined first. So it was me and John. And then basically
1: Kieran was in London
2: and he heard that me and John were, were starting to play. And he sent John a letter offering his services as a drummer. And he'd, like, he'd filled in for Billy, Doherty. Uh, he'd filled in with the Undertones like two or three times, I yeah. think. He'd actually done like a European tour one time when he was about 15 which is still on YouTube, actually. You should see how young he is. Incredible. <laughs> so I, I knew of Kieran because, like, Kieran had played in about two or three punk bands in Derry at some stage, at one stage or another. And uh, I knew of him because one night we were at a pop quiz together and his, he, he was in it and his specialist round was the Buscocks. And he got 10 out of 10. And, like, the Buscocks would have been one of my favourites as well. So I was like, oh, i I'm was really impressed with this guy, you know? I find it really kind of... Mm. In Ritz here. Yeah. Damien was already living in London, and he'd had a band with Mickey Bradley, and it hadn't worked out. And mm. so when he heard our demo, he wanted to play. Yeah. He wanted to join, and like he was happy to, to turn, you know, to be the bass player, mm. which put me in a weird position, as you can imagine, because I, you know, I <laughs> I, I was thinking whoa, what, what's going on here? You know, but I, I wasn't prepared to give up my, you know, he, he never said to me, he never made me feel like, oh, you know, I, well, he should be doing guitar as well. He was so happy just to be playing. And I think yeah. he really loved playing bass in the early days. You know, it was, you know, it was just a, a different thing for him and he was just happy to be a part of it, you know? So, so it worked out quite well. Yeah, he joined the band and then he, he tried to drown out the both of us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and treat and in fashion. yeah. And then you, so you've, got, um, you've already ditched the idea of the female vocalist. You've got Steve Mack, and then you go off on uh, with that Petrol Emotion, which um, we've already done a fantastic podcast where we've gone into the whole story of um, that Petrol Emotion with Damien, yourself, and Kieran, which um, I recommend um, anyone who hasn't heard it to check out Retrosonic Podcast, the special uh, episode. It's, it's a great listen, you know. And so then you've got Steve Mack involved, and then you start writing songs. And tell us... Um, what was the first sort of recorded your own song that you managed to, to get on record?
2: I think there's only one song that I've brought to the Petrels. It was never done, that it, you know, that was just discarded. And I never done anything with it either. So I was really lucky. Yeah. I was really on a bit of a roll. I mean, the first, the first thing that I would have done would have been is actually blind spot, And that was like, uh, I think I just give John, I give John, I had the verses for it, right? So I, I gave him the verses, just the words, and then he came back and, he basically had more or less the whole thing and he had the chorus and everything. And then he mm. came up with that amazing guitar solo as well. So, and it, it's really funny because it's, you know, the, the, the format of it is, is exactly like Blue Eyes as well. Same number of verses and stuff. So that was the first thing I ever like gave John. So then we wrote, and then, but the first thing I ever wrote by myself was lifeblood. So it would have been, I think I would have played it to Damien first. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's really good. So that really gave me confidence, you know? So yeah. when you think about it, it's, it's incredible, you know, like first things that you, you've, you've written, are all, you know, they're all documented, they're all on yeah. record. And- well,
1: that's a great, great track. So let's hear that Petrol Ocean, and this is Lifeblood. So let's just um, pick out a track um, randomly, uh, a track that you particularly like from that Petrol Emotion, and, uh, and we'll give it a spin.
2: Okay, um, I'll pick Andy Weatherall's remix of Abandon. I think um, it was quite difficult to, to just pick one, but I think he, he did a great job on that, and we didn't really know who he was. Like Virgin asked us to let him do a remix, so a couple of us actually went to the studio, Just to make sure that, you know, because I had no idea. You know, he was completely unknown. I didn't didn't know who he was or anything. Uh, Very quickly, he really kind of charmed us. And, you know, he knew what he was doing. I mean, he he worked really quickly. And he had a brilliant engineer as well. This guy called Hugo Nicholson, who really kind of is responsible for the sound of a lot of stuff that he did in those early remixes and really helped him a lot and had great ideas of his own. And we worked with him uh, once more
1: for... um, uh, uh, version of a Leonard Cohen song Stories of Street for a Leonard Cohen yeah. tribute record I think he did capture some of the eff- essence of that Petrol Motion because you were always into sort of dance music and funk music and soul music as well as the the sort of the punky side of things and I think this is a great version and uh, I think we'll play that now we'll play Boy's Own Andrew Weatherall mix of um, Abandoned When I asked you about, um, to pick a couple of Petrol Motion tracks, you know, surprisingly, you tended to go for sort of more the reflective side of things, you know, some of the quieter, um, nicer songs, you know.
2: Well, I think our ballads are really under undervalued. I think John, Damien, Kieran, myself, we've all individually and together written some really beautiful ballads. And I always thought that that was the that that's the true test of a, of a proper songwriter that they can write, you know, that they can write like a pop tune, a kind of up, up song, a noisy song. Yeah. Uh, and then like a ballad, you know what I mean? It's something you can, I, I'm always sort of hoping that somebody will do one of the ballads and, and kind of bring people, bring us to people's attention again, because I think we've just yeah. gone under the wire and been completely missed. There's no two songs a Pedral's did, or, or even vaguely, yeah similar really do you know what i mean you know you get yeah. other bands like and you know you had that thing especially in the 60s somebody would have a hit the follow-up hit was more or less the same thing again because they didn't want to deviate from the sound too much do you know what i mean yeah yeah like we never did that i think it was to our detriment as well maybe people just couldn't get a handle on what we were doing sometimes
1: well let's pick a track um pick one that you're particularly proud of that shows this sort of more the sort of uh I say you call them ballads but I I just think they're more than that they're they're sort of um, some of them are so beautiful timeless music you know so pick one of your favourites for us
2: do either you can do either Sweet River Burn or Heartbeat Mosaic I'll leave it to you to pick one of those
1: okay well I might even play both of them alright great (laughs)
0: sunset tears this crummy town will squeeze you cling to fears Always known good is gold, twice as hard to part with. Truth be told, I just can't explain. Smothered home, sweet, chill.
1: You know, you've you've um, you know reached quite quite a, quite a good level of success with that petrol emotion. So you must have shared the stage or the bill with some of your musical heroes over the years. Have there any particular people that you've worked with that have stood out that you've been impressed with or that you've been blown away by? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've
2: I've been lucky to meet quite a few of my heroes. You know, like face to face. We like we played with Eggy Pop. We did a we did a a tour about must have been around the first, it was, it was right the, around the first the time of the first Gulf War. When I was in New York, um, we were both on Virgin. Iggy was, Iggy was signed to Virgin and so were we. And I remember we had a couple of days off in New York and they told us to come to this thing where Lenny, it was Lenny Kravitz, <laughs> was doing a thank you gig, private thank you gig for um, MTV. And I was like, and so we heard it was free beer, so of course we went. And it was my birthday. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody said, from Virgin, said, I'll, c- I'll come downstairs. We want to have a, a photograph of you using um, an Iggy Pop. So we got to meet Iggy Pop. Yeah. And he was Jim, you know, he was gen- Gentleman Jim, you know, he wasn't Iggy Pop, he was Gentleman Jim. And he was so sweet and lovely and, mm. you know, personable and. I, it, was, it was amazing, I, I, would, I but I never got to see the photograph. I'm sure it's like in the vault somewhere in Virgin. Mm-hmm. I'd really love to have that photograph. Yeah, so then whenever he was doing his next tour, which would have been American Caesar time, and uh, we did five shows with him. Like, so it would have been like Glasgow, Birmingham, London, and then Rotterdam, and maybe Amsterdam or something mm-hmm. as well. So it was like five shows, and they were quite big quite big shows and, and they were amazing. I mean, we had um, actually France from the Young Gods. We had roped him in to play bass because um, John McKinney had just left or whatever. So for, we had France from the Young Gods on bass. So him and Kieran were like a real, they were yeah. enjoying playing together. And exactly. it, was, it, it took a lot of pressure off being a support band. You know, you had played 45 minutes. We had, we could play all your best songs and make a great impression and then go and watch Iggy, you know? So that was fantastic. <laughs> and, and I hadn't seen him, I'd never seen him before live. So I remember he came on stage and it was in Glasgow and um, he ran to the front of the, the stage and he started shaking the PA and you thought, we were all like, kind of laughing, but then you thought, he's actually trying to push it off. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is really dangerous, you know? <laughs> and I just to see that wired energy because the thing about it is, I remember watching him off stage before he came on and I mean, he's tiny. I mean, I'm, not, I'm a midget, I'm... <laughs> five foot five at the most. I think I'm shrinking. Yeah. And he's he's only five one or five two. He's even smaller than yeah. I am. Like. but the thing, about it was you saw him like down the steps waiting to go on, and he just looked like a wee small man. Yeah. When he came on stage, it's like he seems to like just grow, and you know, it's like sort of Jack on Hyde in a way. Yeah. And just the energy that he projected when he ran on, and the crowd roared and stuff. And and he had a good band at that. I mean, they were a bit sort of heavy metal, but they were really good. And the you know they stuck to the hits. There wasn't any. This is you know all the tracks off the latest LP that nobody wants to hear. They were just giving you the hits, you know, one after the other. And it's like you know those songs are like those songs do damage. You know, it's fantastic.
1: And you and you've picked a track, an Iggy track, which wasn't the an obvious choice. And I think this is quite an underrated album. This is. Kill City from the album he did with um, James Williamson. And uh, it's, a, it's a great track, isn't it? That's oh, brilliant. Uh, so it's an LP very few people talk about. And mm. it's like it's all
2: good as well. It's not that long. Mm. I, think, I think that's why it's so good. It's like it's not, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome. No. And it's, you know it's obviously more, you can see it's more enthralled in the Rolling Stones, but just the songs are so good. And then James Williamson did a remaster there a few years ago. And it's bloody brilliant because you can hear all the detail that that you couldn't really pick up on before, all the kind of nice overdubs and stuff. So if you've got headphones on,
1: it's it's great. great The words are brilliant. I mean, the words are fantastic. Yeah, no, I love this album and um, it's a great excuse to play it. You know, let's hear Iggy Pop and James Williamson and Kill City. I say working with people like Iggy and that. Were you ever a collector of memorabilia? Have you got a? We were as a musician. I know it's difficult. You're you're, you're working. You're but were you ever a, a, a sort of starstruck? And did you ever sort of grab any memorabilia or, or merchandise along the way? Have you got any any prized possessions from your adventures?
2: Uh, I don't really. You know, that's my eternal sort of shame. Really, I mean, even a lot of people. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, we, whenever um, whenever the Pedrals. Reformed in 2008, 2009, we went to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and there was a friend of ours uh, who really knew Ian McLagan very well from the Faces, and he he had moved to Austin to he was living there, and he used to play every week with his band, so we got to meet him, and me and Damien spent the whole evening chatting to him, and I'd read his autobiography, so I knew a lot about his kind of backstory and. Uh, you know, his family are Irish and stuff. So, you know, he, he really took to us and we just loved hearing his stories and stuff. We never even got a photograph of him or anything. I and mean, then he was dead like a couple of years later, you know, and it was just like, what are we doing? So whenever, so like um, a few years ago, um, Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls uh, did a thing up in, um, up in Camden. Oh, where yeah. He had, a book out. he had a book out and he was doing like a little kind of, he did a few songs and, and then he did a Q and a and stuff. And, and me and Damien, we were like, right, we're getting a photograph of this guy. <laughs> He's not getting away from us this time, you know? And we did. We got this great photograph of him, you know? You know, the thing about it was, like, I stopped drinking and taking drugs. Um, started in 93. So for, you know, for about 15 years, I was really keen on it, you know? So unfortunately, some of the, <laughs> some of my most memorable sort of times, you know, I, Unfortunately, I don't have great recall about it. You know, for example, (laughs) one night, my friend, uh, Mickey, he, for a while, he was putting on bands in the George Ruby, And uh, he put on John Cooper Clark for a couple of shows. So apparently me and John Cooper Clark spent the whole night at the bar of the George Ruby, chatting and laughing and having the best of time. Can I tell you one thing about that evening? No, I can't remember <laughs> it. And I mean, that would have been the time where he was on Smack as well and looking me Nico and stuff, you know? So what a disaster. So, yeah. that, you know, a lot of my stories are I was drunk and I met, you know, like I met for first time when we signed the Polydor Records. They invited us to, it was like a big do for Polygram. It must have been like the end of the year. Yeah, it must have been the end. No, it must have been. Yeah, I think that's what it was. It's the end of the year, 1986. So they, we'd signed with them, but we hadn't made... We were just about to go on to McBabble. So me and Steve went. And so we met all these people, you know. And I remember meeting uh, the singer from Yellow, um, you know, the Swiss. The Swiss yeah, yeah. yeah. Yellow. And the guy, like, you know, the singer, his name escapes me now, which is terrible. I know they other like, like, something, forest, forest Blank. What's his
1: name? Dieter somebody. I can't.
2: Dieter, that's it. Dieter. It is Dieter Meyer, something like that. Yes, yeah, something like that, yeah. The day I met Dieter, and I was telling Dieter how we used to play uh, I Love You by Yellow and... In our, in our little club night, you know, in Derry. Oh, right. <laughs> 40 people, 50 people, whatever it was. And, I, you know, I'm sure he must have thought I was insane, you know. I mean, I do, I do remember some people. I remember, like, um, Pete Wiley was, was great fun. Well, we used to see him quite a lot because he was with our management company for a while. And he used to just turn up out of the blue. Or he'd turn up, you know, we were playing in Liverpool. And you're guaranteed a great night with him, you know, cause you, never get to actually say anything, but all you had to do is just listen to all the great stories that he had and mm. all his adventures, you know? So, you know, I got to meet the Buzzcocks a few times and, you know, God, like Pete Shelley, one of my heroes, met him, yeah. I met Eggie, I met television, met Richard Lloyd. And I'd like to go back and relove some of it
1: again. I definitely, uh, you know. Yeah, so you can remember. <laughs> Exactly.
2: Yeah, you know, absolutely. well, it's good. Like, the one good thing is if you got Kieran with well, you, he's got a brilliant memory. He's got good yeah. recall. So, a lot of stuff
1: I can't remember, he'll tell me, you know. So, have you got any, any sort of to um, merchandise in your possession? The, right? the only thing that I could think of, uh, I think I might have put this in the
2: email to you, was that whenever I was at Col- Coleraine University, NUU as it was called at the time, University of Ulster, and, you know, not many bands would come over. It was only a few English bands that would would come over and Dexys came over. So this would have been just after Dance Dance. So basically there was, you know, I remember, it was, I think it was 50p to get in to see them. And there was only f- like 40 people there. There wasn't yeah. that many people, if there even was 40 people. But this was the time between Dance Dance and Gino. So if, if you think about it, the night that I saw them, I think 10, 10 weeks later, they were number one with Gino. And the yeah. thing about it was, so they, they didn't care. There was only 40 people there. You know, they'd already been paid. I and, mean, you know, the universities paid quite well in those days. That was a good, that circuit was a really good circuit to play. So they turned up and they played, you know, there was maybe 40 people, 50 people there, but they played like there was 40,000 people there. Yeah. They put on a show mm-hmm. and they were just like, you know, I remember looking around and every one of us was just mostly our you kind know, crowd and a few other, you know, real music fans who um, probably didn't hadn't even heard dance dance, but we had dance dance. We knew about them, yeah. and uh, we knew that like, Kevin, kind of the Irish heritage and stuff as well. And they came on stage and they just done one of the most amazing gigs I've ever seen in my life. Just yeah. blew the place away. Do you know what I mean? They knew they were great. You know, yeah. they they were doing it for themselves, but it was like you know you could just tell everything was coming good for them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like kind of speechless at the end. And I got, to, I, I, I went, I don't know how I managed it, but I went to, I don't usually do this, but I went to talk to Kevin and he was really lovely. He spent ages chatting to me and I had the poster hmm. for the, the university poster. And it was a great poster as well. Yeah. And I got him to sign it. So he's the only person I've ever asked for his autograph. So that, I would say that poster has autograph. Interesting. it's kind of half fallen apart now, but I still got it. It's in the garage.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great story,
2: and uh, so that's that's my memorable. That's I think that's yeah. I think it means a that means a lot to me. Lot. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, pick a Dexys track because they're a great band, especially their early early songs. So, um,
2: uh, tell me when my light turns green.
1: Oh, it's a great track. Yeah, should we hear that now? Yeah, let's play it. Let's go back to you as a as a fan because i know you're a, a huge music fan yourself and um just a bit of fun here let's just pick um pick a classic example of a, a great 45 single you know a great a great sort of pop song doesn't that, i mean pop as in like doesn't have to be pop music but a great pop single pick us
2: a... well pick something that was really you know was top top 10 i'm not sure maybe even top five it's 20th century boy by t-rex I mean, it's one of those songs every time i hear it it's still Yeah, I've heard it a million times, so every time I hear it it still sounds you know, it's everything that I love in one record, you know. It's Mm. just like it just really lifts me up every single time, you know, it'll always do the trick. Yeah. Always. (laughs)
1: And you come up with another track, um, which is probably quite timely as a bit of sad news that Steve Priest of The Sweet passed away recently. And, and this would have been, again, a good example of a classic 45 is um, is The Sweet. Yeah, Bore and Blitz. And Bore and Blitz. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's sad news about Steve Priest. But this is a great band. I mean, The Sweet made some great pop singles, didn't they? A classic record. Ah, oh,
2: brilliant. I mean, they had a run. They had a fantastic run in the early to mid-70s as well, like. Five, six, seven, eight. Like the they even even still having hits in nineteen seventy seven, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they were. They were great. I mean, you know, those records sound fantastic as well. I yeah. And I mean, they're just—it's absolute nonsense, but it's fantastic nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But that's that's the great. A lot of the great pop music is uh, is nonsense, isn't it? That's the love. That's the yeah. Whole, I
2: think I, I think that what, when you're doing pop music, you can't be self conscious. You know, I think it's. I think self-consciousness is the anime of good art, really.
1: Records, I'm talking about albums now. How many albums would you say are like the, the perfect album? You know, I mean, there's no matter taking away just your favorite band and, and bands that you like, but I'm talking an, an album that sort of from the cover art to the sound to the production to the track listing to the you know, there's no filler. I mean, for example, for me, Parallel Lines Blondie is a great example of a great, great album. How about
2: you? What, give us a couple of examples of... A- I, I, I made you a list, didn't I? I? say Stevie Wonder, Talking Book and Inner Visions, both of those, are you, yet? Because I'm talking about, like, records, because, you know, there's always something, like, even, say, well, Astral Weeks by Van Morrison, there's still always a couple of tracks on there I would skip. But the ones where I really thought about, and I thought I'd never skip any of these, uh, Love, Forever Changes, not a big favourite of mine, Television, Marky Moon, first New York Dolls LP, First two Roxy Music first three Roxy Music LPs yeah, three. first three Roxy Music LPs, Low, Honky Dory by Bowie, yeah. Air 2, I mean the both of those are perfect, there's not one bad track on those and they flow beautifully. They ever the Everlasting LP is, I think there's no filler on that either, I would say maybe some of the other Petrels records I would definitely skip the odd track or whatever but I think that's why I'm so proud of the Everlasting Yeah record, uh, Animal Horizon because I remember when I went to sequence it and it was so easy to sequence because I knew what way it should go On the north side On the south side On the east side, west side It's all around Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you hear it?
0: Now it's all over town There's a new beat on shaking Street So let's beat before it gets too late
1: I remember writing about it when I first heard it and being completely blown away. Obviously, you can read about it on the Retroman blog, you know, but you must yeah, be so proud do. of that record, you know. It's, it's... I,
2: I am, you know, I am, because if you think about it, I mean, look at the gap. is uh, 18, what, what, how many years was it between records? It's, it's, it's like 22 years or something ridiculous. So, you know, like uh, all that time, it's really funny because people think, oh, they were away for like 22 years. What were they doing? I mean, me and Kieran have about 30, 35, pieces of music and uh, songs we have so much material so what like recently we were saying to each other you know like times running the night we need to get all this stuff out you know so whenever hopefully we can get back to any sort of semblance of norm- normality and and finish because you know we've halfway re- through recording the second everlasting yeah record finally yeah. and that sounds fantastic i mean we, we went down and did three songs a weekend and it was very intense but, and we worked really hard, but when we came out, it was what we've done is great. And then the the next four songs after that to do are probably even better, you know. So it's it's really exciting. And then we just have loads of our stuff. We gotta try and get in. I think we're going to just start putting stuff out and not being so precious about it. I think we have to just start putting stuff out because we're we're running out of time, you know. Mm. And I think we're still. We're very lucky. There's an audience here that's still waiting for us and still waiting to put put the stuff out. So the stuff's great. You know, it should be heard as well.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, because it's been it seems such a long time ago that we saw you play live. Oh, you, know, and you, were, yeah. you were premiering some of these great songs, I've I've got a couple on the Retro Man Blog YouTube channel where um we we, we did our gig at the Half Moon and you played. Yeah. And then you started to feed a couple of these songs in. Um, yeah, they're even and, better than those. I mean, I remember listening to one of them recently, and I mean, you know, they, yeah. they've gone through so many
2: changes since then. They're just like ten times better now as well.
1: Have you got any working titles for the album yet, or anything? Uh, to keep us. Um, they don't
2: like the ones. They don't like the ones that I've given them so far. <laughs> So, well, <laughs> well, I've got a couple of good ones for my solo records. I'm keeping them to myself now.
1: Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. We look forward to hearing those. So, yeah, so
2: some friends as well are, are going to help me to try and get some money together to, to go and make a solo record as well. So I'm going to wow. do that.
1: Well, we look forward to hearing that.
2: Yeah, I've been writing some stuff during the, the lockdown as well. So I've been quite busy. Yeah, It's been nice having all this extra time. I'd like to make more time to, for music. And you've done your own podcast as well, haven't you? Well, I did one and then I went through, yeah, I mean, it was, it was quite difficult because just the technical side of things, I'm just so useless on, but I'm getting better. And I think now with these Zooms, I think, like not done this with you today, it's given me confidence to, to maybe, because I've got a good, I've got some really good people lined up that are very interesting. So I think I've got to get that up and running again. I mean, if, there's about 500 people watched the first one, which is, which or listened
1: to the first one, which is great. And it's still there. It's up on SoundCloud. When I publish the podcast, I'll also put a, a little feature on retromanblog.com, um, and I'll put okay. links to that petrol Emotion sites and um, obviously the Everlasting Year and your, your podcast. So I'll check the, um, the blog RetroManBlog.com, for all the links to uh, where you can buy all lots of lovely everlasting Year albums. and um, we look yeah, forward great, to.: yeah. yeah, and we look forward to the, to the new album when it's uh, coming out, and that's good news that uh, it's underway. So I'd just like to say thank you, Raymond Gorman, of um, currently The Everlasting Year, and it's great news that we've got a new album to look forward to, well, hopefully reasonably soon. Appreciate you taking the time to chat to us. Uh, Really good to see you again. Thanks for having me, as they say. (laughs) I look forward to the next one. Yep, I'm sure we'll do another one in the future when you've got your solo album out, maybe.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, well, there'll be a solo album and hopefully The Everlasting Year as well. and Hopefully the avalanche of all this stuff that's been in the background for all this time, and we'll see you soon. Take care, Steve. Thank you. Yes.